Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chaplin Talks with me, Spencer Chaplin. I want to thank everyone who has listened and downloaded the podcast so far. I want you to know that you can go to YouTube, watch all the episodes on there in video format, where you'll see lots of extra clips and audio clips and everything. Also, there are episodes that you can watch on YouTube which cannot be made into audio format. So please head over there, like, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so today's guest is none other than legendary keyboardist Rick Wakeman. Rick Wakeman uh, met my grandfather several times. He knows my dad pretty well. He is a member of the prog rock band Yes. He has worked with everyone from T-Rex to David Bowie to Cat Stevens. So everybody, please welcome Rick Wakeman. Is your switch on here? Is it on? Good, so I was just testing you there to see if you knew that. <laughs> so, uh, Rick Wakeman, thank you so much for coming That's... on Chaplin Talks. Listen, this is a great pleasure and a great honour. Thank you very much, Spencer. Uh, it's a real pleasure for me. I've been excited about this. <laughs> you must get out more, because <laughs> I can assure you there's far more exciting things than talking to me. <laughs> so, uh, so you've had a lot of, you know, you've had a very successful career with Yes, obviously, you had a very mm. successful solo career, but you have also played on some, some of my favourite songs, which I didn't even know you were a part of. So for people like David Bowie, Cat Stevens, T-Rex, yeah. uh, how did you come to meet these people and record with these iconic artists, you know? Well, I, when I left the Royal College of Music, in fact, while I was still at the Royal College of Music, I was doing sessions to help pay my way there because it was it was quite expensive and my parents really didn't have any money so it was um, earn the money to keep yourself going and I started doing sessions working for what they called fixers and fixers were people who fixed the musicians for the different sessions and it started to get incredibly busy and I did about 2,000 sessions in about three four years uh, some obviously more memorable than others yeah uh, I mean I mean some instantly forgettable but you know, every now and then you were really lucky and you got some uh, a big name and then what happened then if you got a bit of a, a bit of a name for doing something with a big name that spread to other big names and what you do to do it uh, and I started doing a lot of stuff for Tony Visconti okay. who produced David Bowie and others and T-Rex um, uh, Mark Bowen when he went out on his own uh, and I did a lot of stuff with Tony because Tony also produced the Straubs and I went on to, to join the Straubs. And it was quite interesting because I was in the studio doing, this is relevant by the way, uh, <laughs> I, I was in a studio in, in Wilston with a band that Tony produced called Junior's Eyes who were a, a really good band, uh, quite cult in their own, own way. Um, and whilst I was in the studio, there was an old, well not old, it was new then, Mellotron had just appeared. Uh, which is a, uh, an instrument which is run on tapes and I said oh is that a Mellotron in the, the studio and I said yeah yeah I said can I have a go and he went yeah yeah go yeah, it's in the other studio bit so so I went and, and he said it's a big problem they won't stay in tune so I played around with it for about an hour and, hour, and I found a way of keeping it in tune okay. and Tony Visconti sort of came and he went how are you keeping that in tune and I said well he went no don't tell me he said, keep it to yourself. He said, you'll get a lot of work now if you're the only one who keep And I laughed. Uh, this was 1969 now. Um, I was working with a band in, in England in Reading, um, which is a town in Berkshire, uh, playing with a 17-piece soul band. 
and a phone call came through to the top ranked ballroom which is where it was uh, a message for me this is way before the days of mobiles and things so I went off to the office uh, it was Tony Visconti he said can you get up to Trident Studios in Wardour Street pretty quick and I said well I'm in Reading he said well how long will it take you I said I know probably well, two hours two and a bit hours he said just get here he said in park up he said we're doing doing a single with, with David Bowie and we can't keep the Mellotron in tune and David said uh, do you know anybody who can keep it in tune and Tony said I know the very man so I said oh okay then so I, I shot up to Wardour Street went in and it was Space Oddity and we did Space Oddity and, and ran it through and that lasted, it took us about 20 minutes and then uh, David said come and, come and have a drink so I went out and had a drink with him and he said I've heard some of your piano playing that you've done Tony's played me some he said would you like to do some piano for me on some tracks and I said yeah I'd love to wow. so I went back and I did Wild Eye Boy from Free Cloud um, and Memories of a Free Festival and a few other bits and pieces I did for him uh, and then uh, he asked me to do the Hunky Dory album, Life on Mars and all those kind of Amazing. things. Uh, but in between that, because word had sort of spread, I suddenly started, uh, um, you know, did sessions, Lou Reed came in. So I, uh, so I went and did sessions for Lou Reed. Because uh, Tony did T-Rex, I did Mark Bolan, uh, uh, which was great fun to do. And it was wonderful. I just started meeting all these wonderful so people and, uh, and doing lots of other sessions as well, lots of pop sessions, did things like... Love Grows Like My no, Rosemary's Nose, or whatever it's called. Uh, I had a lot of fun. There was one bit of a problem because at one stage, the BBC, Top of the Pops, uh, they declared that uh, a musician's union said that some of the bands that went on and played hadn't played on the records, so the people who played on the records had to be on the show, oh, only yeah. the singer, which went fractionally wrong because there was one Top of the Pops where I would have been in six bands because <laughs> I played on a lot. And so they... And there was me and, and Herbie Flowers as another one and another couple of guys so they hastily had to change the rules because it was just with, you know here's the top six and it's the same band with a different name uh, but I actually was on one session for a very well-known uh, Irish girl singer called Dana and a guy who was uh, producing whose name I can remember but I'm safe of it uh, he didn't know a hashi from a crotchet. He hadn't got a clue what he was doing. <laughs> and we were doing we were doing the rhythm rhythm track before you know the rest of the orchestra came in. And I went into the control room. And he turned to the engineer while we were having a playback and listening. It was just it was just bass, drums, uh, guitar, and uh, something a, a me, yeah, piano. And he said he said, oh, he had a pipe. And he went, oh, he said, uh, engineer. He said, yeah. He said, I I can't hear the strings. And he said, there aren't any strings. They're not coming in till tomorrow morning. And to save face, he went, well, there's strings on the guitar, isn't there? And he said, yeah. He said, well, I can't hear them. And he said, I mean, I mean we, we met some idiots. But it was, it, it was a lot of fun, and I learned an awful, I learned an awful lot. And, and, and was lucky enough to work in some of the best studios with the best people. Didn't get paid much, nine pound. Nine pounds, nine, nine pounds a session, but this is 1968, yeah, 69, yeah, yeah. 1970. But uh, that was a lot of money for me back then. Uh, I mean, I mean, I could drink most of it in a day. And no, but it, it, it was good. Then I joined Straws at the same time. That was 1970. I joined Straws, so I was mixing the sessions with the Straws, 
and, and then sort of join Yes after Straws and realised that I would not have the time because Yes was going to be so busy, mm-hmm. not have the time, so I, I, I quit doing the sessions. Although I still do some every now and then. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I still do. And um, uh, Harry, Harry Shearer, who, uh, who seems, must have seen Spider Man. Oh, yeah, out. of course. I love that from The Simpsons as well. Harry's a great mate of mine, and he played Derek Smalls in the, oh, one of in the, the best uh, films ever. <laughs> and uh, he, he contacted me. We're, we're good, good friends. Uh, he said, "Derek Smalls is doing a comeback album." And I said, "You're joking." He said, "Yeah, but none of the others want to take part, so I'm getting my mates involved uh, as a laugh." I said, "This sounds a bit of fun." He said, "Do you fancy doing the keyboards?" I said, "Yeah." So. Um, <laughs> People say, "Who have you worked with recently?" I said, "Derek Smalls." <laughs> That's I, mean, I, 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 I pick and choose. If one comes through that I really fancy, I go, "Oh yeah, I'll do that." Yeah, of course. You know, I did. Um, uh, oh, uh, um, William Shatner's album. Did you really? I've done two two albums with William Shatner, who loves prog rock, but he doesn't sing; he speaks. He I speaks over I, the top of the music. So I've done the last two, which is great. Which is and some of the music is like really good, and he will talk over the top and the university and wonderful that kind of thing. Uh, but it was just great fun to do. Yeah, I did an album with William Shatner. Uh, so yeah, Another it's one for the resume. Absolutely, it's just good fun. So occasionally, if something comes along that appeals to me, I'll, st- I'll still do them. Is there anyone you turned down that you wish you had worked with, collaborated um, with? I've never turned down anybody that I wished to be honest with you. Okay. Uh, and. Uh, to be honest, most of the people, it's, uh, it's not so much turning down these days, it's, it's more not available, really. Okay. You know, I, I mean, I, the, the, you do get the odd things that you go, like the odd film you get offered. And, and I'm always very honest when I've done films. If I feel I can contribute to the film musically, then I'll take the job. Uh, it, but if there's a film that may be even likely to be bigger or better, but I don't feel I can contribute yeah, yeah. to the film, then I'll, I'll politely, I'll say, I have to be really honest, I, I don't think I can, this, I'm the right man for this. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm always reasonably honest with the things that, I, uh, things that I do. Okay, great. What a story. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. Oh, uh, short answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, great. And so take me through the process of creating, like, Morning Has Broken. How does that, how does that I mean, Cat Stevens, he, he, he comes to you and just says, I've got an idea for a song? Or? Well, it came through Cat, initially through Cat Stevens' roadie, uh, who also used to do some stuff for Straub sometimes. Uh, and Cat Stevens had said he wanted to do Morning Has Broken, and he just wanted to do it guitar and piano. And, and he'd heard me play with Straub sort of thing, and said, uh, you know, get hold of Rick and see if he'll do it. I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I went along to the studio and there was just me and Cat Stevens, nobody else, and a, uh, a lovely piano. He had the acoustic guitar and Paul Samuel Smith was the producer and we played it through. Uh, and then it was, uh, his producer said it was very short, it's only about 40 seconds long, a bit short for a <laughs> single. So he said, uh, and Cat Stevens said, we need a, a piano opening, an introduction. So I played around on the piano for a bit and came up with the introduction. And Cat Stevens said, I love that. So we did that. And he said, well, let's go up to about one minute, 20. And then, then the producer put, he said, can you stick it at the end? So I stuck the intro at the end. He said, right, we're up to two minutes. And then I said, it'll go in the middle. They said, I'll stick it in the middle. So I stuck it in the middle. And eventually we got it up to three minutes. And, okay. and that's how, it, how we did it. And uh, the record company um, didn't like it. I know that for a fact, and the record so, company said, because uh, they were releasing singles off of the album, and in desperation at the end, they released Morning Has Broken, and it was a monster hit, an absolute a monster hit. 
and um, uh, and it was it was lovely to do. And the interesting thing is, it was in that was 1970, something like that. 1970 it would have been, and this year, 2020, uh, I got a phone call from my good friend Gary Brooker from Procoharum, who said um, we're doing a massive concert at the O2 in London to raise money for the Royal Marsden which is the big cancer hospital in London. Mm -hmm. He said, we want to raise a million. He said, um, are you up for it? I said, absolutely up for it. I'd love to come along and play. He said, I've got lots of people who really want to come along and, and, and do it. And uh, I said, I'm definitely there. And he said, you know the Royal Master? I said, yeah. I said, my, my, uh, they've looked after my wife for over a year. Um, she had uh, you know, the, the dreaded and they've, they've done a phenomenal job and saved their life. They've been absolutely brilliant. I'd love to be there. And then he said, great, lovely. So then he calls me back. He said, look, he said, Cat Stevens is doing it, or Yousaf, uh, as his Yousaf, name is. Yousaf, isn't it? Um, and he said, Cat um, said that he's not played Morning Is Broken. He plays it now as an acoustic thing, but you two have never played it together Ooh. since 1970. He said, would you fancy playing it with him? I said, I'd love to. So it was really funny. We get to uh, the O2. And there's no rehearsal time for anybody. And it was great to see him. I hadn't seen him for an awful long time. Um, and uh, I said, look, do you still play the same version that we recorded? And he went, uh, no. <laughs> and I went, right. He said, I'm in a different key for a start, because all singers, the voices drop over. And I went, what do you do it in now? He went, B flat. I went, oh, great, that's lovely. Ooh. So I said, OK, all right. So we went into the, the dressing room, and he played it. And it was a completely different version to, I mean, the, the song's the same. But, but all the interesting. And I went, he said, he said, what did we use to, so I played when, oh, I said, look, it's the easiest thing to do. I'll do what you do. I'll do what you do. I, I'll work, because that's the easiest thing. But I'll do the long ending, the proper ending, because people will know if that, that's missing. And so that, that's what we did. And it was wonderful, oh. you know, after all those years to do. Lovely man. And we've, we've sort of semi-kept in touch, which is nice. Got a lot of time for it. That was great fun to do that. Yeah, he seems like a very nice guy, actually. He is, yeah. Very genuine guy, very caring fellow. And you, you, you've said in the past that uh, David Bowie is the most influ uh, inspirational person that you've ever met. Inspirational and influential. Uh, really, yep. uh, why? Because I've never met anybody in my life who is so focused. He was so focused. Whatever the task was he was doing, whether it was music, writing, acting, dressing, he would be focused on doing that. And he was also a doer. He hated could-haves. He hated could-haves. You know, if somebody said, oh, I could have done that, he would just say, why didn't you then? If he wanted to know what it was like to walk down Montreux, down on the front, on the main street, wearing a ball gown and a pair of knickers on his head, he would do it just to find out what it was like. Not to go, I wonder what it would be like to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was absolutely brilliant. He told me always to pick musicians that would understand what I wanted to do. Otherwise, you'd never get the end result you wanted. I mean, I learned so much. We spent many, many hours in the museum club uh, putting the world to rights and, and talking music. Um, I genuinely loved that man, dearly. Yeah. Uh, I could never have done a lot of what I've done without what I learned from David and the people he worked with. Uh, Mick Ronson, great guy. Uh, Tony Visconti, Gus Sturgeon. Learned a lot from these people. Yeah, I'm sure. He was, and as well, he, I mean, he, every album he did was so different to... to yeah, I mean, he picked musicians for different albums, for what, what, yeah. what, what worked for him. Uh, I, I mean, I did do a bit of Spiders from Mars, but then went off and joined Yes, so that... That, that sort of killed that one stone dead. Mm. But as I said to David once, he, uh, I said, um, what did you think when I 
took the choice instead of doing spiders and went, went with yes. He said, absolutely the right decision. He said, I changed the band every two or three years. <laughs> he said, so you've been out of work by now anyway. And we laughed. At, uh, but we did do some other things together. 1985, he called me up and said he was doing absolute beginners and he wanted some Rachmaninoff-style piano. He said, do you fancy a bit of nostalgia and coming along and doing it? Like, yeah. You know, so we met at a, a, a studio in London, in Labra Grove and did the piano, that took 20 minutes, chatted for about four hours and that was it. Amazing that you can even, you know, record something in one one take, it sounds like, with you, 20 you, minutes done, I mean. The best, the first takes are always the best, and I learned that from David, okay. uh, first or second. I mean, if we were doing, running a piece through, especially on the Hunky Dory, if we were onto about the third or fourth time of running it, and it weren't quite, he, he said, stop, that's it, I'll have another look at it. Because something can't be can't be right. We'll come back to that another day. Really? Yeah, he said the more you go on, it starts to lose its freshness, and all of the, all of the things. And the same with solos. Solos were done first or second time because they're fresh. Then they're solo. Oh, really? Otherwise, they start to become created, organised. You know. So um, that was that was something to do. So I, I learned to try and. And just just get so involved with the music, you could you know you could get it in the first one, two yeah. or three takes. That was it. Well, especially in those days with tape recorders and everything, you oh, had to get it right. <laughs> absolutely, you're dead right. Yeah, because um, you had 16 track. Then it went well. When I started, it was four track. Then it was eight track. Then 16 track. Then it went to 24 track, and then. Um, the next thing was to link two 24s together to get <laughs> and the first one of those was actually at, at, um, uh, at the, the, the casino at Mountain Studios they, the two 24s linked together but it never really worked the truth be known because it was they had to link themselves up when they started so you got through about 300 foot of tape before they actually joined up and linked together and by the time they'd linked together we forgot what we were going to play uh, Alan had gone skiing and I'd gone down the white horse you know but you're right it was a lot different because uh, it's funny that you say that because my my father told me that when Yes would come into the studio it didn't matter if they had eight tracks they'd use all eight tracks if they had 24 tracks they would use oh, yeah. all 24 tracks if there was like you said two 24 tracks yeah, you always made sure uh, to absolutely. use everything oh absolutely uh, and every, everybody want, want, wanted more. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, <clears throat> Alan always wanted, well, I'll, I'll have 16 tracks. No, you won't. <laughs> Drummer. You know, you're lucky to have one. You know, and, uh, and then um, St what used to happen was, because uh, Steve used to love doing hundreds of overdub, I just put a little line on there. I have to say, we're always great. Like, it just go, I want to go, diggly diggly long. Yeah. And we have to find a space on the tape, which could be on the snare drum track when he actually wasn't playing it. So you'd be playing like you'd hear this going, trying to mix all this. It was an absolute nightmare. And so, because you just released, well, just this year you released an album called Red Planet. I did indeed. I mean, do you find it difficult coming up with new material and writing new songs? Don't move away. Stay just where you are. I'll be right back. I'm not going for a wee. I'm not going for a wee, I promise you that. Okay. Um, I'm coming okay. back and it wasn't a wee. <laughs> there you go, something, oh, something to listen to amazing. in the car. Amazing. There you go, there you go. I've, got a, I've still got a CD player in my car as well. So oh perfect. good, okay, yeah. I'll the, put it on on the way back. It's, <laughs> in, it's interesting what you said about coming up with new, new stuff. That was audience driven. Okay. I've done a lot of piano albums recently 
which thankfully have done very well. And then whilst on tour, especially with John Anderson and Trevor Rabin uh, in America, I kept getting people coming up to me. I was saying, why don't you do another prog rock album? Why don't you do an instrumental prog rock album? Okay. Why don't you do an instrumental prog rock album that's sort of based around the style that you played when you did Six Wives back in the 70s? A 70s prog rock instrumental album. And they just kept asking and asking and asking. And uh, I used to give the same answer. I said, well, when I get a, a concept that inspires me, okay. maybe I can do it. But I can't just write a piece and give it a name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to have something that I'm thinking about and working on. And then I've got a great friend called Garrick Israelian, who's an Armenian chap. He's an uh, astrophysicist, a brilliantly clever. He's one of the guys who've, who found and proved black holes. Ludicrously clever. Uh, and I was introduced to him and Professor Stephen Hawking by Brian May. Okay. And they run a festival called Starmus, which is uh, all these uh, physicists and chemists and scientists do all these brilliant lectures. Um, which I went to a Stephen Hawking lecture. Uh, it lasted for an hour and a half. I did not understand one word, but I was riveted from start to finish. It was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and I got, got become quite friendly with him. Anyway, at the end of the, of the, of the big uh, festival, they have a concert. And the concerts are brilliant. I did, uh, in in um, last year, uh, 2019, uh, we did the concert in Zurich. Because oh, really? uh, it's the anniversary of the 50 years of man landing on the moon. And we had every surviving astronaut who'd walked on the moon there. Oh, really? Outrageous. And, and, and a decent band. It was Hans Zimmer with his full band, orchestra, choir, Brian May, myself, um, uh, Steve Vai. It was just outrageous. That and the last thing we played was We Are The Champions with all the... And all of the surviving astronauts walked on stage. No. And I tell you, the hairs on the back. Place, place went berserk. But it was whilst I was there, um, I was talking to Garrick, and Garrick said, well, of course, 2021's another big year. And I, I said, why is that, Garrick? And he said, well, he said, that's man's first arrival up, at, up on Mars. And I went, yeah, I've forgotten that. And he said, we've learnt so much about Mars now. He said, we now know in the light, we, we, we've learned that, that a few billion years ago, it was a blue planet, like Earth. It wasn't a red planet. Uh, and he said, and it, we now know that they had, it had rivers and oceans and all sorts. And he said, so he said, undoubtedly, your good friend David Bowie was right. There was life on Mars. <laughs> and uh, he said, will you be playing at our, you'll be playing at our festival 2021. I said, I'll do better than that. I said, I, I've, just, I've just got to get going on, on an out. I said, I've been looking for a concert, something to inspire me. And I said, this is it. He said, there are some wonderful photos now. It's almost like being there. It's that incredible. And he said, in 2021, around about March, um, he said there's three other missions going to arrive there that will prove an awful lot more than we even know now. Oh, uh, wow. It takes about seven months to get there. It does. You yeah. know, it's not just around the corner. And uh, so I went back and I just got, and when I say hundreds and hundreds, I mean hundreds and hundreds of pictures and photos of Mars, loads of books, lots of the latest information. My friends at NASA sent me loads of stuff. I just engrossed myself in uh, in the plan. And then I, and I, and I wrote the album. Apparently the... Um they, to make the effects more, they if put the planet red, redder than it actually is on photos, because uh, to meet people's expectations. It, it, in, in some cases, it, uh, you're quite right. Uh, but uh, other things that are interesting as well, uh, there are reports that it uh, that I felt uh, that it rains on Mars, okay. and I thought, hold oh, no, on, it can't rain. They don't have any water there. It cannot rain on Mars, but it does. But it rains the equivalent of dry ice. 
And I thought, it doesn't get any more 70s rock and roll than dry ice, you know. It's, yeah. it, it is really, you know, quite incredible. And we had a lot of fun. I had some fantastic musicians on the album. And it's been, it's not been out very long, but it's been doing very well uh, in, in there's all the different charts now. It got in the, in the top 20 main chart. It's number one in the independent chart. Um, oh, really? It's um, my... Uh, youngest my youngest daughter it's number one in her chart okay. uh, it's, but you know it's great fun it's, it's, it's do you have a favorite song on here no all of them really i have to say that that means you're gonna have to listen to the whole thing on the way home <laughs> so if i'm driving behind you some poor sod behind it gets thrown out the window and and hits them on the windscreen oh it's that bloody wakeman's red planet again there you go i'm sure i'll enjoy it and uh, so obviously to prepare for this interview i went on youtube <laughs> right, I went on YouTube looking for all these different musical performances and stuff. And there's uh, a few. There's there's a lot on there. There's a lot to take in. And uh, I'm old, you see. <laughs> and I stumbled upon your acceptance speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I know I'm sure many people have told you is probably the funniest acceptance speech ever done in the history of ever. It wasn't <laughs> planned. It was not planned. I'll tell you the honest truth. I was very proud to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The only thing that really disappointed me, and I've, I've said it to the people who, who, who run it, who I go very well with, I said, look, I said, I think sometimes you induct bands in far too late when they've lost a lot of members. That's very true. And I said, you know, the Who go in, no John Entwistle, no Keith Moon, founder members. Of the, I said, it's ridiculous. They were, they were even bigger when they were in the band than they are, and they weren't inducted in. A deep purple, no John Lord. You know, it's it's it's. I said, mm. I think you're, you're, you're missing a trick with all this. And now with yes, with no Chris Squire, we're being inducted. And it's true. It's not like these people passed away long time ago. Like, no, no. Like John Lord. I mean, no. it's all relatively recent. Recent, you know. And then with, with Chris, and I said, I think it's such a such a shame. Anyway, very proud. So we go along, <laughs> and it's done in this the huge auditorium out in Brooklyn somewhere, seventeen thousand people, uh, who are all drunk, and you're sitting around the table. Uh, eating uh, absolutely the most abysmal food, <laughs> it, it really, uh, and then then it starts. The, now I I'll be honest with you, I love award ceremonies. I think they're great yeah, to yeah. Uh, because the, the the speeches are just awful. Nobody cares. The people who are out there who are watching, they don't want to know when somebody that goes. Uh, I got my first guitar when I was three, <laughs> which my dad bought for me, and then my mum made me a little costume and I did a concert in the car. Who gives a toss? Nobody. And there's the people out there going, oh God, we've heard all this before we've seen it. And And what you have is you, you have this hum yeah. that goes around of just people talking. And uh, there, I, was, I, I was interested in Joan Baez's speech because I like Joan Baez and, 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 and she was quite forceful about uh, uh, stuff that she wanted to say. Okay, that's, that's a bit different than talking about, you know, uh, um, Mum gave her a new pair of knickers for her first concert. So we're up there, and uh, all the people really want to do is, they want, they want to hear the bands play, that's all they want to do. So we're up there in a line, and because there's so many of us involved yeah, with Yes, yeah. we're all standing in line, and away it goes. I'd like to thank my dad. Uh, I'm going, oh, don't do this to me. Don't. And, I'd like, and the hum's getting louder and louder. And... Trevor Rabin and, and, and John Anderson both know that in, in England, I'm known for doing comedy, I do a lot of comedy stuff. And uh, Trevor just went, go for it, liven it up for oh, God's really? sake. And I said, I'm not known for doing comedy in America, Trev. 
He said, they soon bloody will go out there. And I said, yeah, but I, I've got, you know, the routines are long, you know, I've got, yeah, he, he said, oh, do something. So I walked out, there's this hum going around of people talking away. And I thought, I'll just do one line and see what happens. And I did the line about this. It was behind this very building with the first place that I ever yeah. had, had my first meaningful sexual encounter. And it started to go quieter. And, and I said, well, it wasn't very good. And there was a bit of a laugh. I said, it never is when you're on your own. And, and the place just sort of... And, and, uh, and I looked around and Trev went... Oh, oh, really? So I went, right, go for it. And I'm trying to think of... Because the routines and things that I do when I do stand-up. And I thought, they're all too long, so I just have to pick bits out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought, oh, let's go for the jugular. So what's, what's better than more than talk about than the prostate? So I thought, well, I'll go into the prostate bit and go... And, it was it was it was good fun, and afterwards, um, it was it was very interesting actually because I was amused those and people anyway had called up and said, "Thank God you did that." It was <laughs> it, 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 it was just really really nice, and and um, some of the people at the Rock Hall at the time were not not very pleased. And when they did the film, which was going to go out on HBO, they edited me out entirely. Did they? HBO said unless they put me back in, they, they wouldn't show any of it. I mean. Take a joke, maybe. <laughs> it was one of the things I always said was, it was not meant to be irreverent at all. Yeah, yeah. I'm very proud to be inducted. Very proud to be in the Hall of Fame. But it's just it was my little statement against, and it's not just the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, the the Grammys, the Emmys, the you know, the, the Oscars. It, it's all well. My first acting, I owe all to the. Who cares? You know, <laughs> show me a clip of what you're doing. That and that's it. You know, it, it is the whole acceptance speech, which is why Ricky Gervais is such a breath of fresh air. Yeah, good God, for when great, he gets love. Up, the, oh yeah, doesn't doesn't world. care. I, I love Ricky DeBetz, he's a lovely man. And, and you know, so that so that that was it. And it was just purely uh not to be rebellious, but just I'd had enough. Yeah, yeah. You know. And uh it didn't do any harm. No, it didn't well. You I had didn't, the audience in the palm of your hand. Well yeah, because, and a lot of it was to do with the fact that how many more times can they hear my uncle Albert yeah. gave me, you know, not interested. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> And so, as you mentioned... Uh, you they've not invited me back, by the way, <laughs> I hasten to... <laughs> yeah. yeah, luckily you can only get the, the award Yeah, once. that's true. That's, that's true. And uh, so you mentioned that you've gone on the road and done stand-up comedy. I mean, yeah. what made you want to try stand-up comedy out? I've been doing it for years, really. Have you? Well, on the shows, yeah, I've been doing it since... since the 70s. Um, oh, really? Okay. I, and the idea came initially from Straub's because uh, Strauss was initially a folk band when I joined them and one of the things about most folk singer guitarists they've got no idea what they're tuning they do different tunings for different songs so between the songs you know they'll they'll hold it you know they'll finish the song da 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 and then they'll start tuning up for the next song going doing 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 well I was out in Cyprus one month doing 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 and I met this woman who was having sex with a goat doing 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 and they tell these stories and I thought, that's brilliant. why don't they do that in, in, in rock shows and things? So I started throwing a few stories in, in rock, started mixing the two together, and then doing piano shows yeah. with, with comedy, then straight stand-up, and I hosted live at Jonglers for eight years on ITV, which is a big comedy show, and then doing other comedy stuff. Um, and I just think the two greatest things in the world are music and laughter. Yeah. Absolutely, you know, and, it, and it, it, just, it just doesn't get any better than that. Mm. 
you can't be unhappy when you're laughing. And that, that's very true. You know, and uh, and I've loved laughter for as long, way back as I can remember. Yeah, well, like my grandfather always said, a day without laughter is a day wasted. I, you know, he's absolutely right. Your grandfather's right. I mean, he. Uh, I mean, I'm a big slapstick fan. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and uh, you know, as you probably know, I've been involved with the Slapstick Festival in, in Bristol and other places. Like, and I've done music for silent, silent stuff. It's one of the things I loved and discovered about a lot of um, silent stuff in comedy-wise. Even though they had no sound, they they had to have been cut by music. You can see it if you can work out the timings. You can put it exactly, and you can see it was cut to to music. Well, because I was going to ask you, because uh, you obviously accompanied a, a, a Laurel and Hardy film, right? I did, yeah. You, you said, so I mean, how difficult is it to, to to play music to a film and keeping it, like you're saying, in time? Um, it's it's interesting because it it, it isn't. It isn't. Okay. If you tune into the film, I mean, the great thing about your grandfather and also the great thing about Laurel and Hardy, they were both members of the Grand Order of Water Rats, yeah. are very proud members too. And um, so we're brought up on all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But when you're playing to a silent movie, you almost, well, hopefully you know the movie anyway, even though, but you, you always have to be sort of one step ahead of knowing what's going to happen. So you can build up to, which is why in a lot of silent movies, when the, the great pianists and organists who used to do them in the early days, uh, they never, if you actually listen back to what they played, it, it was all over the place because yeah. they knew just when to speed up, just when to slow down. And so it was actual pieces of music, they're rubbish. But to, to put them with the film, joy, absolutely tremendous and great fun to do. And I did a rare Laurel and Hardy short at the, at the Slapstick Festival in Bristol going back about five years it was, I did that one. Um, and it was just great fun to do. What was interesting was that I had the film beforehand. They, they let me have the film, yeah. uh, and, and I worked out roughly what I was going to do. I had uh, copious notes of how I was going to do it. And, what I was going to do. and I went up, and there was the grand piano on stage, the screen uh, in, in Colston Hall, and I sat there, the film started, and I totally ignored, not deliberately, everything that I'd written and did something completely different because I was in a completely different frame of mind yeah, on that day yeah, watching yeah. the film uh, and play and and to a lot of extent I think it was a lot better because it was instant instantaneous you know without I think, but it's great fun to do I've done a, 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 I did the Hammer films uh, Lon Chaney um, uh, Phantom of the Opera Really? 80 minutes, just solid music from start to finish. Wow. And I'm working on another silent movie trilogy at this present moment in time. They're just wonderful to work to, you know, because there's no sound effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's just music and, and film. Yeah. Brilliant, love it. <laughs> you know, I, uh, so I asked my father, who obviously you know quite well from your I days in Switzerland. Yeah. So I, I called him up and I said, like, uh, do you have any stories about Rick that's know? not true I didn't I honestly didn't do it there <laughs> uh, so no, I knew her well admittedly but it, God, I dread to think what's his, what's his no no so actually he gave me three things to, to, to mention they're not bad so one is he remembers you he still asks me to this day he always said this he never knew what it was he said that you had a portable organ or something he had pipes in a organ pipes in a flight case or something do you know what he's absolutely right yeah um, what, I, what what kind of organ was that? 
I had it made in 1974 by an organ company called Manders, an old man who's sadly no longer with us. Huge church organ, and I wanted them to make me a, a port, what they call a portative organ. And I went to see them, and they made this organ for me, which was way ahead of its time. I've still got it. Have you still got it? Yeah, way ahead of its time, because um, it was all electronic, but it had um, an, um, a huge umbilical cord really that ran everything. Big bellows, 360 pipes in the case, wow. uh, and it was just beautiful. And we did a lot of um, uh, awaken before we went to the big church in Vevey. We did uh, the early bits on on, okay. on on that lovely, lovely thing, and I loved it to bits. Crew hated it because it took about 12 people to lift it. Okay, so it's still um, big. It was portable, portable. It, yeah, <laughs> portable, portable because of its its size, yeah. not because of its weight. I mean, 360 pipes, they weigh a lot. Yeah, uh, I've still got it. Uh, I mean, I really would like to get round one day to have it re restored. I'd really like to do that. Um, Noel Mander no longer with us. The company exists. And his son, John Mander, said that they would love to do oh, to wow. do. So one day, it's a matter of where the hell do you put it? Yeah. Um, so, but one day I, I will get it done because it is a beautiful piece. That's quite right. And it, it came to, um, it, it came out to Montreux and uh, we used it as on the going for the one album. Yeah. Uh, a wonderful piece. I think your dad may well have got um, roped into help lifting. <laughs> Some joke. Yeah, so, well, he was he was the assistant sort of. Eugene yeah, was yeah. Eugene loved him, a great friend, uh, and uh, he, uh, he 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 had the unfortunate job of uh, of what uh, good assistants are. You're first there and you're last to Did go, you? and so and you are called upon to do anything from uh, tape hopping to tape editing yeah. to doing part of the recording to carrying to, to it, it, I mean the, the old expression of, of, of experienced dog boss, dog's body yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's um, uh, and uh, and he'd also come for a drink with me too uh, so, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure at some juncture he had the misfortune of having to carry uh, no, carry well, this well, that's probably why he remembers it so well yeah, I was I, when <laughs> you mentioned that, it, what was that bloody thing yeah when you mentioned it I thought oh yeah I oh, know this is going yeah uh, and so the second thing he said was, uh, oh. you remember when you were in the church in Vevey and yeah. you were remote, remotely uh, recording the organ Yeah. while the studio was obviously in Montreux through telephone lines. Yeah, that's right. Which we didn't know we could do that. I mean, what um, when I used church organ before on recordings, you'd, you'd gone away and you'd recorded a, uh, a, the, the church organ on a, on a, on a Revox or something, and you'd come back and you'd try to somehow throw it into the track or do something with it. Um, it was really difficult and we were in the studio and John and I used to go to this lovely little church in Vevey and, and John had a had a harp um, and he had his little harp and I used to play away and John used to play. We just had a lovely time, it was just so much fun. And when we were doing Awaken and I did the initial bits on my little organ, we wanted a big organ and sound. Yeah. So I said, Let, let's, let's go up to so I said, okay, what we'll do, we need need to take a Revox or something up there, record it, bring it back, try and slot it in uh, best we can. With uh, And John Timperley said, don't have to do that. We said, why not? He said, we'll do it down the telephone. And I said, what? Now, this is 1976. Yeah, yeah. And I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, this is Switzerland. He said, uh, he said, they're prepared for all things, including nuclear war. Uh, and I said, right. He said, um, he said, they've got it all sorted out there. He said, and what they've got with all their 
cabling and wiring, he said it's way beneath the ground. He said it's of the highest hi-fi quality. He said, and you can rent the lines. I went, can, and we said, well, who, who rents the lines? We'd better get in quick. He said, nobody, because nobody really knows you can And uh, who wants to rent? He said, we can rent the lines direct here into the studio. It's about, what, nine miles, or is it a bit less? I yeah, yeah. the church. So, and I said, you're joking. He said, there will be a bit of latency, so you'll have to really think differently a few, you know, a few seconds ahead kind of thing. Um, he said, but it'll work, and it'll be the perfect true sound. So I sat in Vevey in the church, the band room on triad, the headphones on. Amazing. Alan Count, I say 1976. You know that it, it's it's remarkable. 40, 45 years ago. Yeah. And and uh, and I played uh, and it worked really really well. We came back and we were just all jumping up and down for joy. We went to another church in Montreal and recorded a choir. Okay. And then when we came to do Chris's track Parallels, uh, which I'd originally done on the Hammond at the front. Chris said, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? And I said, you want me to go back to Vevey and do it on the church hall? And he went, yeah. So it's exactly what we did. Uh, um, it was interesting, in recent years, there have been a few bands who have been doing remote things down uh, and saying, oh, we're way ahead of the time, going, no, you're not. We did it in <laughs> 1976. Uh, so... Um, I'd love to. I've not been back to the church since, but I'm well, a lot of. It's still yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, I, I get. I probably. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say about a dozen times a month uh, to the to the website. I get people say we have just been from Brazil. We've come to Switzerland. Oh, we've gone really? to the church. So we, yeah, yeah. A lot of people they come and they they do a little pilgrimage to the church. Wow. It is a pretty church. Yeah, yeah it's a great, really nice church. Yeah, a wonderful uh, stained glass. Yeah, yeah. That when the sunshine shines it through into the middle. Absolutely beautiful. I love that place. Yeah. I never got married there. I got married everywhere else, but I never got married there. <laughs> and, uh, okay, so number three was that he remembers being in the, I guess he was in the studio with you when he found out that my grandfather, or his father, Charlie Chaplin's grave was stolen. Uh, yeah, a coffin was stolen out of the grave. Uh, yeah, do you remember? I remember it very. Well, I remember it very well because uh, by this time, uh, I was living in Switzerland. The band and the rest of the yes had gone, and I was living there. Uh, I ended up with um, uh, with who became my wife for, yeah. a, for a week, and then uh, <laughs> we were together for five years. Then got married, and it lasted about a week. Uh, obviously something went wrong there um, but, but, and anyway that's, I'm, I'm rambling there's a surprise and um, and we'd had the great privilege of meeting your grandfather uh, which when you're a a genuine silent movie fan and a comedy oh. fan I mean was I, ha I will actually have to say to you, I have got some great friends who are uh, comedy fans silent movie fans Huge Chaplin fans mm. and Buskin. One in particular is a great friend of mine called Ian Lavender, who has played Pike in Dad's Army. If you uh, anybody's seen it, um, and there isn't much he doesn't know about silent movies and those, okay. those days. We were actually having dinner one day, and this is not not a joke. And uh, you'll probably have to bleep this out. Uh, we were talking about uh, we've been talking about Buster Keaton, then we're talking about. Uh, Obviously, came on uh, Lauren Hardy. No, obviously, came on to Char Charlie Chaplin because both alterats. And he said, uh, Oh, he said, I'd have given my eye teeth to have met Charlie Chaplin. So, my absolute hero. And I said, uh, I met him. <laughs> he went, What? I said, I met him. I said, Went round his house. 
so I had afternoon tea. And he looked at me and said, you had afternoon tea? Which I said, yep, I did. I said, uh, it, it was absolutely fantastic. I said, I went twice. And he just went, he looked at me and went, you utter bastard. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you're a musician. He said, yeah, go, go and have dinner with with, with Gurkyov, the, the conductor. He said, Charlie Chaplin, that's my territory. He said, you should have refused and got me. You know. And he was, he was actually like deadly serious. That's you know. so funny. He, he, and there's been quite a few comedian friends of mine I know who, who know that uh, I had the honour of going down there. And it's sort of a, well, why do you, you had no right to go there. Kind of. how, how did you get the invitation? Through your dad. It was through, through my dad. It was through your dad. It was through Eugene. And then I'll, I, we'll get back to the to yeah, the yeah. Uh, to the coffee being stolen after that. Um, one day in the studio, uh, Eugene said, um, "He said, um, you know, my 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 father's very uh, keen on music." I said, "Oh yeah, I yeah. know." He said, and he, he he said he'd like to uh, like to meet you. Uh, he would like to meet me. Are you sure? You know. Uh, is, is he having a, a, a brain aneurysm or something? <laughs> and he went, no, he'd like to be. So um, I said, are you sure? So he said, yeah. He said, um, uh, come, come round on ne next next Sunday. Come round back to... So I went back and I went round with uh, Daniel, my missus at the, at the time, mm -hmm. went down, were made... I will admit, I don't get nervous about many things. I was nervous about meeting me. I have to... You know, it's... it's um, there's meeting somebody who's an icon, and then there's meeting somebody who's a double icon, who's, who's above that. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, and Charlie Chaplin was certainly there. I, I remember going in, and Una came first and, and met us, and, and Eugene was there. And um, uh, it was amazing. And he he sort of came came out, and uh, sort of you get tongue tied a bit. It was just wonderful. I just I wish cameras were about at the time. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. were no mobile phones, you know. In fact, it was hard to get your phone to work up there. <laughs> um, but it, it, there were no, no, nobody said, oh, can I take a picture? Because I'll be honest with you, I, it, I have huge regrets that I have no... no but you, you didn't take a camera along. You wouldn't no. go to somebody else's house and say, can I take a picture in your, in your courtyard or in your house? You don't, you don't do that. But the the, uh, the question you ask about when the coffin was stolen, yeah. I was I was down in the studio, and uh, it was a sort of a, all of, uh, I, I mean your dad. I was really good friends with your dad. He was always calm. Still is. Is he still very? Yeah, yeah. He was always calm. Nothing phased him. Uh, I, I'm the opposite. I go, what the bloody hell's going? And he and he just said, I said. Uh, I can't remember exactly, but I know it was something really stupid, like we're having a car. I said, how's everything going? He said, oh, they, they stole Father's coffin today. I went, I'll have a cup. What? And he said, yeah, it's been stolen. He said, you're probably going to get a visit, because we weren't far away up in Le Monde on the, uh, And in fact, we did when I got back to the house. Uh, Daniel, my missus at the time, uh, she'd had the old... Uh, Carabinieri round already, mm -hmm. and a few other asking if anything unusual been going on, driving around that it wouldn't normally see. Uh, but um, that upset me. I was I, I was generally really upset about that, uh, and it, it, it was uh, and so were 
all the people that around the air that the best ones that knew it was just there's certain things you don't do yeah you don't do at all or don't even think about doing and, and that was and that was one of them you know and uh it but it was um but in in true swiss manner it was all nicely kept wasn't it under the oh kind you know, of was yeah and the funny thing is is when, when they called out my grandmother and asked for the ransom money she just flat out said no yeah so over the space of a week or so they called something like 27 times you know because they're desperate willing to negotiate and uh, she just she was like well, obviously no like why, why would I even bother he you know he would hate it if I did that oh he'd go you know <laughs> listen, I only met him those two times and had a little chat but from what I know and and know from the archives at the Grand Order of Water Acts where we've got yeah. a lot of stuff on on Charlie um, you could hear him almost go don't you dare Tell him to get stuffed. You know, you could, you could almost, couldn't you? Yeah, you, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have wanted it at all. So it was spot on right there. And uh, you know, and apparently when they, they set up this kind of sting operation where they were going to swap out. Uh, she set up. She was pretending. They they tapped the phones and they set up a, a drop. Oh, okay. And so uh, what happened was that the police took the chauffeur, the, her Rolls Royce. Yeah. One of the police was undercover acting as a chauffeur, and there were some hidden in the back. And uh, so he goes driving along. He gets to, to Corsier village. Yeah. And the local postman sees this random guy driving the Rolls Royce who's not the normal chauffeur. So he starts following the car, right? And How Swiss <laughs> is that? <laughs> and so, and so, and then there's a, apparently there was a, a policeman in the, in, in the, in the, in the boot. And he got car sick, you know, and was being sick everywhere. And then the the, the postman's like calling up, saying, "Listen, there, there's something wrong wrong here." And apparently, it, all, it took a few times, but they eventually <laughs> sorted it out. <laughs> I, I'm amazed it's not been a big feature film on it. You know? I know, I know. It, it, it really, really should be. And uh, well, I'm blown. According to my dad, apparently he he said as well. My grandmother said that. Uh, it's sort of a shame we found the coffin really because it would have been you know just a ending to a story it's like where has he gone like, been another Agatha Christie type of thing <laughs> it? It would, it, it, that's, that's true but I think yeah I think you can, you can, you can sort of say that afterwards yeah. but exactly. you know it, it, was, it, was, it was good that he came back yeah and uh, so when did you first discover Charlie Chaplin's films or how did you first hear of them through my father Okay. My my dad was a great piano player and had uh, concert parties and variety things before the war, and uh, and I, I was introduced to because there was no television when I was born in 1949, um, we, we, no telly. But uh, when telly first came in, they used to show anything they could, and okay. they'd find black and white movies. And also at the cinema, they would often show. Uh, you didn't just get the feature film, which is what you get now, which really annoys me. You just get the feature. You would get. Uh, uh, the news, you would get a cartoon, you would get a silent movie, then you would get a B movie, mm. and then you would get the A movie. It was a proper variety entertainment at the cinema. You don't get that now, and it annoys me. And I wish somebody would start bringing that back. Mm. Because it was important for many reasons as well, because the B movies, which were basically sometimes 50 minutes to an hour, that was where a lot of directors you know, learned how to, how to direct. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, that, that, all, that all went. But... Um, uh, on, certainly as a, as a kid, we used to have Saturday morning pictures over here uh, for six minutes you had a whole morning. Parents loved it because you just kicked the kids out. Um, and there was always 
a silent movie. And it was always, you either, that's why I got introduced to your grandfather plus uh, a Laurel and Hardy as, mm-hmm. uh, as Buster Keaton, Fatty Arbuckle, you'd get all, yeah, exactly. all that. And it was, it was fantastic. And, uh, and they were all relatively short films at the time, because for the children's TV, they, uh, children's films, they didn't show the, the you know, the big, the, the big length movies. They would show like the, you know, 15 minute, 20 minute exactly, shorts. Exactly, the shorts, yeah. And, and we loved them because we were we were kids, and it encouraged us to because you could buy ice creams in the in the cinema, and that encouraged us to throw them at each other. And it, <laughs> of course, it, it, I, I was serious. Uh, uh, you get things like you know, silent movie, and then there'd be the the famous pie or something guy, yeah. and then it would start. Then they go and everything, and it was brilliant. It's what kids love to do. It's yeah. I've always thought of of a uh, uh, slapstick. I've always thought of it as brilliant timing by adults who are still kids. Exactly, yeah, yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it, it, it really is good. And, and the only, I, I had, and I lost it in one of the divorces, which really, I, was, I did have a slapstick. I had an actual slapstick. Oh, really? And, and, uh, which I got for a great friend of mine, Mike Summerson, who, Summerson Films, is the guy who invented Panavision, actually. And uh, he had an original old wow. slapstick, and I, and I wanted a. And, but that went. A lot of things went in the various marriages, but that was one of them. But uh, <laughs> and that that was it really. I just loved, um, because, not just because of the genius of of that, everything had to be done live, and that everything had to be done uh, by the, by the guy. And and to put it. Crudely, what was state of the art then? But actually, incredibly basic equipment to do Very basic. to do some of the stuff on. Uh, it was just amazing. But the timing, if you look at some of the time when when you get to some of the routines, the timing. And, and I urge, I've urged all my kids as well, who all love all love it as well. Watch really closely, then watch again and watch again, and you watch at the incredible timing not just as what's happening with whoever's throwing something yeah. but what's going on around them all the different movements again timing has to be to absolute perfection and the same you know with the with the car chases uh, i mean i know there was but but that's not the point they have to be the choreography of how slapstick is done is i just think is pure genius yeah. and i love it and I always will do oh. do you do you have a favorite chapman film or any memorable scenes or anything that you can think of there's one he did which was the, f- and I'll t- you'll be able to see the title. It was the first one where he wore the bowler uh, and the sh- and the yeah, shoe. Yeah, or a kid auto races. Thank you. Because I don't know how it happened, but it was either or somebody said to him, "You need to, you need to put, you know, get an identity with what yeah. you what you put. and that's where the hat and the walk and, exactly. and the sticker. Just walk and into a room and that's it. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So that is a real standout. Yeah, a real standout. Iconic because it's his first appearance as the. Chair. I know. It, it absolutely brilliant. And and that was it. He could. And to a lot of extent, he couldn't really be anything else after that. It's true. Yeah. And that, and, that, and so that. But um, I mean, I don't know how many films Charlie made in the end. I, I mean, it was he a made lot. A, he made a lot of films, including shorts. It was in the eighties, I think. Yeah. You know. Uh, Amazing amount. Yeah, of but he said with the with the costume, what I found interesting is that because when he first got signed to uh, to was it uh, to Keystone, yeah, they uh, basically 
he was there and they kind of looked at him and went, oh, you look a lot younger than, than on stage. And he goes, don't worry, you know, I could put makeup on and everything. They're like, oh, I'm not too sure what to do with you. So for about two weeks, he's on set and they're not using him. Oh, really? Like, I don't know. So finally they call and they say, listen, we've got a part for you. Go get changed. And so the reason, reason he chose that mustache, apparently, he writes it in his book, is because he wants to, he wanted to look older, but without covering the expressions on his face. So he just put a little mustache on. That's that. I didn't know that. Now, I'm probably in, in the realms of fantasy here, but something is in the back of my mind says that on one occasion, when Laurel and Hardy were not working together, they were at different places, that uh, in one film, uh, Charlie worked with uh, um, Oliver Hardy. Do you know if that's true or not? I know they're definitely in the same troupe before they're. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Fred Carno. Yeah, but there was one. on. Uh, there was one film which Stanker Stan went off to do okay. something which didn't actually work too too well, and they tried different people, um, but um, in in. Uh, I was saying desperation because the fact that they knew it would, would work. They put <laughs> Charlie, and I'm—I cannot remember, but I'm pretty damn yeah. certain I'm right. If you, if you do manage to find, let me know because okay. it, it was something that um, when we first uh, spoke on the phone, it, but I thought I'm sure they did. Yeah, no, yeah, you're probably right. He—he's done, he's done so much stuff. With so many people, yeah. Was like, I mean, him and Buster Keaton, and like, I don't know if you see yep. the limelight at the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. They come out together and he's playing. Buster Keaton's on piano. It's one of my favorites. Genius. Yeah. It, it, it is. It, I mean, it, it, what was interesting because Buster Keaton and your uh, and your granddad uh, Charlie was was so different yet so alike, and that, yeah. that sounds a bit of a contradiction in terms. But it's true. Yeah, they're great guys. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And how do you think silent films differ to today's? Like, you know, what's what do you think sets silent films apart from today's films? What sets them apart was because. There, are, there have been some interesting silent movies made in recent recent years, but it's a bit like records. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, we made records. You had to create all of the sounds yourself. You had to do everything yourself. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, there weren't wonderful computers to do a lot of things and everything for you. Back in the days of, of the initial silent movie, you had to do everything. Yeah. You had to do all of the the, the tricks with the, the camera. There weren't optics back then to do the, they a few little things have started but basically you had to create everything that you did yeah. and that's what made the overall picture the trouble is with silent nobody really makes a silent movie today without using all the tricks of the trade that you can do and that is what sets them apart yeah you you look and that's what the difference is you're looking at technology genius these days back then you're just looking at genius all the way around from from the from the camera crew from from the acting uh, from the directing uh, and and film wasn't cheap either back then it was expensive mm -hmm. like so you know a lot of times you you know you couldn't have hundreds of takes and hundreds of goes of various things just you know? got to get it done you just got to got to get it done and and go so you needed everybody to be on the same page and know what they were doing mm -hmm. and I do I'm not an analytical person really but once I get to know a film I do like to Looking and go, oh, that's really clever how they did that. As I said, goes back to the slapstick scene. Yeah. You, you watch it, the choreography. <laughs> it has to be absolutely perfect. You're right. Yeah. No, for sure. And how would you describe Charlie Chaplin as someone who's never heard of him or seen him? 
Um. Gosh, that's a really good question. Um. Have they? If they hadn't seen silent movies, hadn't seen, hadn't, wouldn't know about. I say, well, you just I say, look, I've got to show you something. That's the mm. only way I can do it. There's no sound. There's no sound effects. There's nobody talking. Uh, it, it's just a man uh, dressed up um, with a. And if you took the bowler hat off, um, probably uh, Adolf Hitler copied what he looked like with a little moustache. You know, no, what can you say? I say, no. I don't know. I say, I say, I've got to show you. I've got to show you. And, and I, I, I would say before I get in the mindset of remember when this was done and how it was done, and then you can spot the genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can, you can laugh. You can laugh and cry. Well, he had the ability to make you cry as well. As well, yeah. And he had some, some great leading ladies in, in some really <laughs> great leading ladies. Um, yeah. I mean, perhaps I should have asked him some questions about that. Probably wouldn't have gone down well with yeah. Grandma. But, uh, but, um, but the interesting thing was, uh, you know, it, you know, take all the stuff off. I mean, women loved him, absolutely adored they him. Did. You know, they wanted to mother him and and probably yeah, other things, uh, as other well. things as well. And uh, but uh, I think the only way, do you know what? <coughs> that is a that is a great question, and I don't think it's answerable. I yeah. think, to be honest, you've got to say. I want to show you something, and that is the only way you can yeah. you can do it. Uh, and then, if you get start then getting into the into the history of of silent movies, it, which is just remarkable. I think I think that one of the funny things is uh, not as so much in the comedy things, but certainly in some of the straight movies, some of the actors who are absolutely brilliant at silent movies, and then they come to the talkies, and you go. Don't open your mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. You get this big hunking hero, and he goes, "It's really nice to be here. I love you so much." And you go, "Don't do this." Uh, I mean, it's as bad as uh, over here in England where we had um, we we had a ventriloquist called um, uh, Peter Bruff, yeah. and he had Archie Andrews. He was on the radio. <laughs> He made his name on the radio. So it could funny. only happen in as a ventriloquist on the radio. And then when finally he went on television, people were stunned because his lips moved more than the dummy. <laughs> you know, he was, how are you today, Archie? All oh, right, thank you. And, and, you know, and, and it was a similar thing with some of the some of the silent movies. There, there were some quite famous names, I believe, in the that, that just lasted about eight That's seconds when, when it went. Yeah, 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 but uh, Charlie was not one of them. This has been my favourite interview so far, by the way. Oh, uh, so I'm your second one then, am I? <laughs> yeah. Actually, your only first one. one was a, your first one was a duck that was walking in Burnham Market. <laughs> Hello, duck. What do you think? Thank you very much, Rick. That's all right. Bless you. Thank you so Cheers. much.